Chapter Nine, Part One of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit, by Charles Dickens. Chapter Nine: Town and Todgers, Part One. Surely there never was in any other borough, city, or hamlet in the world, such a singular sort of a place as Todgers's, and surely London, to judge from that part of it which hemmed Todgers's round, and hustled it, and crushed it, and stuck its brick-and-mortar elbows into it, and kept the air from it, and stood perpetually between it and the light, was worthy of Todgers's, and qualified to be on terms of close relationship and alliance with hundreds and thousands of the odd family to which Todgers's belonged. You couldn't walk about Todgers's neighborhood as you could in any other neighborhood. You groped your way for an hour through lanes and byways and courtyards and passages, and you never once emerged upon anything that might be reasonably called a street. A kind of resigned distraction came over the stranger as he trod those devious mazes, and giving himself up for lost, went in and out and round about and quietly turned back again when he came to a dead wall or was stopped by an iron railing and felt that the means of escape might possibly present themselves in their own good time, but that to anticipate them was hopeless. Instances were known of people who, being asked to dine at Todgers's, had travelled round and round for a weary time with its very chimney-pots in view, and finding it at last impossible of attainment, had gone home again with a gentle melancholy on their spirits, tranquil and uncomplaining. Nobody had ever found Todgers's on a verbal direction, though given within a few minutes' walk of it. Cautious emigrants from Scotland or the north of England had been known to reach it safely by impressing a charity boy, town-bred, and bringing him along with them, or by clinging tenaciously to the postman. But these were rare exceptions, and only went to prove the rule that Todgers's was in a labyrinth, whereof the mystery was known but to a chosen few. Several fruit-brokers had their marts near Todgers's, and one of the first impressions wrought upon the stranger's senses was of oranges, of damaged oranges, with blue and green bruises on them, festering in boxes or mouldering away in cellars. All day long a stream of porters from the wharves beside the river, each bearing on his back a bursting chest of oranges, poured slowly through the narrow passages, while underneath the archway by the public-house, the knots of those who rested and regaled within were piled from morning until night. Strange solitary pumps were found near Todgers as hiding themselves for the most part in blind alleys, and keeping company with fire-ladders. There were churches also by dozens, with many a ghostly little churchyard all overgrown with such straggling vegetation as springs up spontaneously from damp and graves and rubbish. In some of these dingy resting-places, which bore much the same analogy to green churchyards as the pots of earth for mignonette and wallflower in the windows overlooking them did to rustic gardens, there were trees, tall trees, still putting forth their leaves in each succeeding year with such a languishing remembrance of their kind, so one might fancy looking on their sickly boughs, as birds in cages have of theirs. Here paralyzed old watchmen guarded the bodies of the dead at night, year after year, until at last they joined that solemn brotherhood, 
and saving that they slept below the ground a sounder sleep than even they had ever known above it, and were shut up in another kind of box, their condition can hardly be said to have undergone any material change when they, in turn, were watched themselves. Among the narrow thoroughfares at hand there lingered, here and there, an ancient doorway of carved oak, from which, of old, the sounds of revelry and feasting often came, but now these mansions, only used for storehouses, were dark and dull, and, being filled with wool and cotton and the like, such heavy merchandise as stifles sound and stops the throat of echo, had an air of palpable deadness about them, which, added to their silence and desertion, made them very grim. In like manner there were gloomy courtyards in these parts, into which few but belated wayfarers ever strayed, and where vast bags and packs of goods, upward or downward bound, were forever dangling between heaven and earth from lofty cranes. There were more trucks near Todgers's than you would suppose a whole city could ever need, not active trucks, but a vagabond race, forever lounging in the narrow lanes before their master's doors and stopping up the pass, so that when a stray hackney-coach or lumbering wagon came that way, they were the cause of such an uproar as enlivened the whole neighbourhood, and made the bells in the next church-tower vibrate again. In the throats and maws of dark no-thoroughfares near Todgers's, individual wine-merchants and wholesale dealers in grocery-ware had perfect little towns of their own, and deep among the foundations of these buildings the ground was undermined and burrowed out into stables, where cart-horses, troubled by rats, might be heard on a quiet Sunday, rattling their halters as disturbed spirits in tales of haunted houses are said to clank their chains. To tell of half the queer old taverns that had a drowsy and secret existence near Todgers's would fill a goodly book, while a second volume, no less capacious, might be devoted to an account of the quaint old guests who frequented their dimly lighted parlours. These were, in general, ancient inhabitants of that region, born and bred there from boyhood, who had long since become wheezy and asthmatical, and short of breath, except in the article of story-telling, in which respect they were still marvellously long-winded. These gentry were much opposed to steam and all new-fangled ways, and held ballooning to be sinful, and deplored the degeneracy of the times, which that particular member of each little club who kept the keys of the nearest church, professionally, always attributed to the prevalence of dissent and irreligion, though the major part of the company inclined to the belief that virtue went out with hair-powder, and that old England's greatness had decayed amain with barbers. As to Todgers's itself, speaking of it only as a house in that neighbourhood, and making no reference to its merits as a commercial boarding establishment, it was worthy to stand where it did. There was one staircase window in it at the side of the house on the ground floor, which tradition said had not been opened for a hundred years at least, and which, abutting on an always dirty lane, was so begrimed and coated with a century's mud that no one pane of glass could possibly fall out, though all were cracked and broken twenty times. But the grand mystery of Todgers's was the cellarage, approachable only by a little back door and a rusty grating, which cellarage within the memory of man had had no connection with the house, but had always been the freehold property of somebody else, and was reported to be full of wealth, though in what shape, whether in silver, brass, or gold, or butts of wine, or casks of gunpowder, 
was matter of profound uncertainty and supreme indifference to Todgers's and all its inmates. The top of the house was worthy of notice. There was a sort of terrace on the roof, with posts and fragments of rotten lines, once intended to dry clothes upon, and there were two or three tea-chests out there, full of earth, with forgotten plants in them, like old walking-sticks. Whoever climbed to this observatory was stunned at first from having knocked his head against the little door in coming out, and after that was for the moment choked from having looked perforce straight down the kitchen chimney. But these two stages over, there were things to gaze at from the top of Todgers's, well worth your seeing, too. For first and foremost, if the day were bright, you observed upon the housetops, stretching far away, a long dark path, the shadow of the monument, and turning round, the tall original was close beside you, with every hair erect upon his golden head, as if the doings of the city frightened him. Then there were steeples, towers, belfries, shining veins, and masts of ships, a very forest, gables, house-tops, garret-windows, wilderness upon wilderness, smoke and noise enough for all the world at once. After the first glance there were slight features in the midst of this crowd of objects, which sprung out from the mass without any reason, as it were, and took hold of the attention whether the spectator would or no. Thus the revolving chimney-pots on one great stack of buildings seemed to be turning gravely to each other every now and then, and whispering the result of their separate observation of what was going on below. Others of a crook-backed shape appeared to be maliciously holding themselves askew, that they might shut the prospect out and baffle Todgers's. The man who was mending a pen at an upper window over the way became of paramount importance in the scene, and made a blank in it ridiculously disproportionate in its extent when he retired. The gambols of a piece of cloth upon the dyer's pole had far more interest for the moment than all the changing motion of the crowd, yet even while the looker-on felt angry with himself for this, and wondered how it was, the tumult swelled into a roar. The hosts of objects seemed to thicken and expand a hundredfold, and after gazing round him, quite scared, he turned into Todgers's again, much more rapidly than he came out, and ten to one he told M. Todgers afterwards that if he hadn't done so, he would certainly have come into the street by the shortest cut, that is to say, head foremost. So said the two Miss Pecksniffs, when they retired with Mrs. Todgers from this place of espial, leaving the youthful porter to close the door and follow them downstairs, who, being of a playful temperament, and contemplating with a delight peculiar to his sex and time of life any chance of dashing himself into small fragments, lingered behind to walk upon the parapet. It being the second day of their stay in London, the Miss Pecksniffs and Mrs. Todgers were by this time highly confidential— insomuch that the last-named lady had already communicated the particulars of three early disappointments of a tender nature, and had furthermore possessed her young friends with a general summary of the life, conduct, and character of Mr. Todgers, who, it seemed, had cut his matrimonial career rather short by unlawfully running away from his happiness and establishing himself in foreign countries as a bachelor. "'Your pa was once a little particular in his attentions, my dears,' said Mrs. Todgers, "'but to be your ma was too much happiness denied me. "'You'd hardly know who this was done for, perhaps.' "'She called their attention to an oval miniature, "'like a little blister which was tacked up over the kettle-holder, 
and in which there was a dreamy shadowing forth of her own visage. "'It's a speaking likeness!' cried the two Miss Pecksniffs. "'It was considered so once,' said Mrs. Todgers, warming herself in a gentlemanly manner at the fire. "'But I hardly thought you would have known it, my loves.' "'They would have known it anywhere, if they could have met with it in the street, or seen it in the shop-window. They would have cried, "'Good gracious! Mrs. Todgers!' "'Presiding over an establishment like this makes sad havoc with the features, my dear Miss Pecksniffs,' said Mrs. Todgers. "'The gravy alone is enough to add twenty years to one's age, I do assure you.' "'Lor!' cried the two Miss Pecksniffs. "'The anxiety of that one item, my dears,' said Mrs. Todgers, "'keeps the mind continually upon the stretch.' There is no such passion in human nature as the passion for gravy among commercial gentlemen. It's nothing to say a joint won't yield. A whole animal wouldn't yield the amount of gravy they expect each day at dinner. And what I have undergone in consequence, cried Mrs. Todgers, raising her eyes and shaking her head, no one would believe. Just like Mr. Pinch, Mary, said Charity, we have always noticed it in him, you remember. "'Yes, my dear,' giggled Mary, "'but we have never given it him, you know. "'You, my dears, having to deal with your pa's pupils "'who can't help themselves, "'are able to take your own way,' said Mrs. Todgers. "'But in a commercial establishment, "'where any gentleman may say any Saturday evening, "'Mrs. Todgers, this day week we part "'in consequence of the cheese, "'it is not so easy to preserve a pleasant understanding.' "'Your pa was kind enough,' added the good lady, "'to invite me to take a ride with you to-day, "'and I think he mentioned that you were going to call upon Miss Pinch. "'Any relation to the gentleman you were speaking of just now, Miss Pecksniff?' "'For goodness' sake, Mrs. Todgers,' interposed the lively Mary, "'don't call him a gentleman. "'My dear Cherry Pinch, a gentleman, the idea!' "'What a wicked girl you are!' cried Mrs. Todgers, "'embracing her with great affection. "'You are quite a quiz, I do declare.' "'My dear Miss Pecksniff, what a happiness your sister's spirits must be to your pa and self!' "'He's the most hideous, goggle-eyed creature, Mrs. Todgers, in existence,' resumed Mary. "'Quite an ogre, the ugliest, awkwardest, frightfulest being you can imagine. "'This is his sister, so I leave you to suppose what she is. "'I shall be obliged to laugh outright. I know I shall,' cried the charming girl. "'I never shall be able to keep my countenance.' The notion of a Miss Pinch presuming to exist at all is sufficient to kill one, but to see her, oh, my stars! Mrs. Todgers laughed immensely at the dear love's humour, and declared she was quite afraid of her that she was. She was so very severe. "'Who is severe?' cried a voice at the door. "'There is no such thing as severity in our family, I hope.' And then Mr. Pecksniff peeped smilingly into the room and said, "'May I come in, Mrs. Todgers?' Mrs. Todgers almost screamed, for the little door of communication between that room and the inner one being wide open, there was a full disclosure of the sofa bedstead and all its monstrous impropriety. But she had the presence of mind to close this portal in the twinkling of an eye, and having done so said, though not without confusion, "'Oh, yes, Mr. Pecksniff, you can come in, if you please.' "'How are we to-day?' said Mr. Pecksniff, jocosely. "'And what are our plans? "'Are we ready to go and see Tom Pinch's sister? "'Ha, ha, ha! "'Poor Thomas Pinch!' "'Are we ready?' returned Mrs. Todgers, "'nodding her head with mysterious intelligence, "'to send a favourable reply to Mr. Jenkins's round robin. "'That's the first question, Mr. Pecksniff.' "'Why Mr. Jenkins's robin, my dear madam?' "'asked Mr. Pecksniff, 
putting one arm round Mercy and the other round Mrs. Todgers, whom he seemed in the abstraction of the moment to mistake for charity. Why Mr. Jenkins's? "'Because he began to get it up, and indeed always takes the lead in the house,' said Mrs. Todgers playfully. "'That's why, sir.' "'Jenkins is a man of superior talents,' observed Mr. Pecksniff. "'I have conceived a great regard for Jenkins. "'I take Jenkins's desire to pay polite attention to my daughters "'as an additional proof of the friendly feeling of Jenkins, Mrs. Todgers.' "'Well, now,' returned that lady, "'having said so much, you must say the rest, Mr. Pecksniff, "'so tell the dear young ladies all about it.' "'With these words she gently eluded Mr. Pecksniff's grasp "'and took Miss Charity into her own embrace, "'though whether she was impelled to this proceeding "'solely by the irrepressible affection she had conceived for that young lady, "'or whether it had any reference to a lowering, "'not to say distinctly spiteful expression "'which had been visible in her face for some moments,' has never been exactly ascertained. Be this as it may, Mr. Pecksniff went on to inform his daughters of the purport and history of the round robin aforesaid, which was, in brief, that the commercial gentleman who helped to make up the sum and substance of that noun of multitude signifying many called Todgers's, desired the honour of their presence at the general table, so long as they remained in the house, and besought that they would grace the board at dinner-time next day, the same being Sunday. He further said that Mrs. Todgers, being a consenting party to this invitation, he was willing for his part to accept it, and so left them that he might write his gracious answer, the while they armed themselves with their best bonnets for the utter defeat and overthrow of Miss Pinch. Tom Pinch's sister was governess in a family, a lofty family, perhaps the wealthiest brass and copper founder's family known to mankind. They lived at Camberwell, in a house so big and fierce that its mere outside, like the outside of a giant's castle, struck terror into vulgar minds and made bold persons quail. There was a great front gate, with a great bell, whose handle was in itself a note of admiration, and a great lodge, which, being close to the house, rather spoilt the lookout, certainly, but made the look-in tremendous. At this entry a great porter kept constant watch and ward, and when he gave the visitor high leave to pass, he rang a second great bell, responsive to whose note a great footman appeared in due time at the great hall-door, with such great tags upon his liveried shoulder that he was perpetually entangling and hooking himself among the chairs and tables, and led a life of torment which could scarcely have been surpassed if he had been a blue-bottle in a world of cobwebs. To this mansion Mr. Pecksniff, accompanied by his daughters and Mrs. Todgers, drove gallantly in a one-horse fly. The foregoing ceremonies having been all performed, they were ushered into the house, and so by degrees they got at last into a small room with books in it, where Mr. Pinch's sister was at that moment instructing her eldest pupil, to wit, a premature little woman of thirteen years old, who had already arrived at such a pitch of whalebone in education that she had nothing girlish about her, which was a source of great rejoicing to all her relations and friends. "'Visitors for Miss Pinch,' said the footman. He must have been an ingenious young man, for he said it very cleverly, with a nice discrimination between the cold respect with which he would have announced visitors to the family, and the warm personal interest with which he would have announced visitors to the cook. Visitors for Miss Pinch 
Miss Pinch rose hastily, with such tokens of agitation as plainly declared that her list of callers was not numerous. At the same time the little pupil became alarmingly upright, and prepared herself to take mental notes of all that might be said and done, for the lady of the establishment was curious in the natural history and habits of the animal called governess, and encouraged her daughters to report thereon whenever occasion served, which was, in reference to all parties concerned, very laudable, improving, and pleasant. It is a melancholy fact, but it must be related, that Mr. Pinch's sister was not at all ugly. On the contrary, she had a good face, a very mild and prepossessing face, and a pretty little figure, slight and short, but remarkable for its neatness. There was something of her brother, much of him, indeed, in a certain gentleness of manner, and in her look of timid trustfulness. But she was so far from being a fright, or a dowdy, or a horror, or anything else predicted by the two Miss Pecksniffs, that those young ladies naturally regarded her with great indignation, feeling that this was by no means what they had come to see. Miss Mercy, as having the larger share of gaiety, bore up the best against this disappointment, and carried it off, in outward show at least, with a titter. But her sister, not caring to hide her disdain, expressed it pretty openly in her looks. As to Mrs. Todgers, she leaned on Mr. Pecksniff's arm, and preserved a kind of genteel grimness, suitable to any state of mind, and involving any shade of opinion. "'Don't be alarmed, Miss Pinch,' said Mr. Pecksniff, taking her hand condescendingly in one of his, and patting it with the other. "'I have called to see you in pursuance of a promise given to your brother, Thomas Pinch. My name—compose yourself, Miss Pinch—is Pecksniff.' The good man emphasized these words as though he would have said, "'You see in me, young person, the benefactor of your race, the patron of your house, the preserver of your brother, who is fed with manna daily from my table, and in right of whom there is a considerable balance in my favour at present standing in the books beyond the sky. But I have no pride, for I can't afford to do without it.' The poor girl felt it all as if it had been gospel truth, her brother, writing in the fullness of his simple heart, had often told her so, and how much more. As Mr. Pecksniff ceased to speak, she hung her head, and dropped a tear upon his hand. "'Oh, very well, Miss Pinch,' thought the sharp pupil, crying before strangers as if you didn't like the situation. "'Thomas is well,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'and sends his love and this letter.' I cannot say, poor fellow, that he will ever be distinguished in our profession, but he has the will to do well, which is the next thing to having the power, and therefore we must bear with him, eh? I know he has the will, sir, said Tom Pinch's sister, and I know how kindly and considerately you cherish it, for which neither he nor I can ever be grateful enough, as we very often say in writing to each other. The young ladies, too, she added, glancing gratefully at his two daughters, I know how much we owe to them. "'My dears,' said Mr. Pecksniff, turning to them with a smile, "'Thomas's sister is saying something you will be glad to hear, I think.' "'We can't take any merit to ourselves, papa,' cried Cherry, as they both apprised Tom Pinch's sister with a curtsy, that they would feel obliged if she would keep her distance. "'Mr. Pinch's being so well provided for is owing to you alone, "'and we can only say how glad we are to hear that he is as grateful as he ought to be.' "'Oh, very well, Miss Pinch,' thought the pupil again, "'got a grateful brother living on other people's kindness.' 
"'It was very kind of you,' said Tom Pinch's sister, with Tom's own simplicity and Tom's own smile, "'to come here very kind indeed, though how great a kindness you have done me in gratifying my wish to see you, and to thank you with my own lips, you who make so light of benefits conferred, can scarcely think.' "'Very grateful, very pleasant, very proper,' murmured Mr. Pecksniff. "'It makes me happy, too,' said Ruth Pinch, who, now that her first surprise was over, had a chatty, cheerful way with her, and a single-hearted desire to look upon the best side of everything, which was the very moral and image of Tom, very happy to think that you will be able to tell him how more than comfortably I am situated here, and how unnecessary it is that he should ever waste a regret on my being cast upon my own resources. Dear me, so long as I heard that he was happy, and he heard that I was, said Tom's sister, we could both bear without one impatient or complaining thought a great deal more than ever we have had to endure, I am very certain. And if ever the plain truth were spoken on this occasionally false earth, Tom's sister spoke it when she said that. Ah, cried Mr. Pecksniff, whose eyes had in the meantime wandered to the pupil. Certainly. And how do you do, my very interesting child? Quite well, I thank you, sir, replied that frosty innocent. A sweet face, this, my dears, said Mr. Pecksniff, turning to his daughters. A charming manner. Both young ladies had been in ecstasies with the scion of a wealthy house, through whom the nearest road and shortest cut to her parents might be supposed to lie, from the first. Mrs. Todgers vowed that anything one quarter so angelic she had never seen. She wanted but a pair of wings, a dear, said that good woman, to be a young syrup, meaning possibly young sylph or seraph. "'If you will give that to your distinguished parents, my amiable little friend,' said Mr. Pecksniff, producing one of his professional cards, "'and will say that I and my daughters—' "'And Mrs. Todgers, pa,' said Mary, "'and Mrs. Todgers of London,' added Mr. Pecksniff, "'that I and my daughters and Mrs. Todgers of London did not intrude upon them, "'as our object simply was to take some notice of Miss Pinch, "'whose brother is a young man in my employment.' but that I could not leave this very chaste mansion without adding my humble tribute, as an architect, to the correctness and elegance of the owner's taste, and to his just appreciation of that beautiful art to the cultivation of which I have devoted a life, and to the promotion of whose glory and advancement I have sacrificed a, a fortune. I shall be very much obliged to you. "'Missus's compliments to Miss Pinch,' said the footman, suddenly appearing and speaking in exactly the same key as before, and begs to know what my young lady is a-learning of just now. "'Oh,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'here is the young man. He will take the card. With my compliments, if you please, young man. My dears, we are interrupting the studies. Let us go.' Some confusion was occasioned for an instant by Mrs. Todgers's unstrapping her little flat hand-basket and hurriedly entrusting the young man with one of her own cards, which, in addition to certain detailed information relative to the terms of the commercial establishment, bore a footnote to the effect that M.T. took that opportunity of thanking those gentlemen who had honoured her with their favours, and begged they would have the goodness, if satisfied with the table, to recommend her to their friends. But Mr. Pecksniff, with admirable presence of mind, recovered this document, and buttoned it up in his own pocket. Then he said to Miss Pinch, with more condescension and kindness than ever, 
for it was desirable the footman should expressly understand that they were not friends of hers, but patrons. "'Good morning, good-bye, God bless you. You may depend upon my continued protection of your brother Thomas. Keep your mind quite at ease, Miss Pinch.' "'Thank you,' said Tom's sister heartily, "'a thousand times.' "'Not at all,' he retorted, patting her gently on the head. "'Don't mention it. You will make me angry if you do.' "'My sweet child,' to the pupil, "'farewell. That fairy creature,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'looking in his pensive mood hard at the footman, as if he meant him, "'has shed a vision on my path, refulgent in its nature, "'and not easily to be obliterated. "'My dears, are you ready?' They were not quite ready yet, for they were still caressing the pupil, but they tore themselves away at length, and sweeping past Miss Pinch, with each a haughty inclination of the head and a curtsy strangled in its berth, flounced into the passage. The young man had rather a long job in showing them out, for Mr. Pecksniff's delight in the tastefulness of the house was such that he could not help often stopping particularly when they were near the parlour door, and giving it expression in a loud voice and very learned terms. Indeed, he delivered, between the study and the hall, a familiar exposition of the whole science of architecture as applied to dwelling-houses, and was yet in the freshness of his eloquence when they reached the garden. "'If you look,' said Mr. Pecksniff, backing from the steps with his head on one side and his eyes half shut, that he might the better take in the proportions of the exterior. If you look, my dears, at the cornice which supports the roof, and observe the airiness of its construction, especially where it sweeps the southern angle of the building, you will feel with me— How do you do, sir? I hope you're well. Interrupting himself with these words, he very politely bowed to a middle-aged gentleman at an upper window, to whom he spoke, not because the gentleman could hear him, for he certainly could not, but as an appropriate accompaniment to his salutation. "'I have no doubt, my dears,' said Mr. Pecksniff, feigning to point out other beauties with his hand, "'that this is the proprietor. I should be glad to know him. It might lead to something. Is he looking this way, Charity? He is opening the window, Pa.' "'Ha-ha!' cried Mr. Pecksniff softly. "'All right. He has found I'm professional. He heard me inside just now, I have no doubt. Don't look.' "'With regard to the fluted pillars in the portico, my dears—' "'Hello!' cried the gentleman. "'Sir, your servant,' said Mr. Pecksniff, taking off his hat. "'I am proud to make your acquaintance.' "'Come off the grass, will you?' roared the gentleman. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said Mr. Pecksniff, doubtful of his having heard aright. "'Did you—' "'Come off the grass!' repeated the gentleman warmly. "'We are unwilling to intrude, sir,' Mr. Pecksniff smilingly began. "'But you are intruding,' returned the other, "'unwarrantably intruding, trespassing. "'You see a gravel walk, don't you? "'What do you think it's meant for? "'Open the gate there. "'Show that party out.' "'With that he clapped down the window again and disappeared. "'Mr. Pecksniff put on his hat and walked with great deliberation "'and in profound silence to the fly, "'gazing at the clouds as he went with great interest.' After helping his daughters and Mrs. Todgers into that conveyance, he stood looking at it for some moments, as if he were not quite certain whether it was a carriage or a temple. But having settled this point in his mind, he got into his place, spread his hands out on his knees, and smiled upon the three beholders. But his daughters, less tranquil-minded, burst into a torrent of indignation. 
This came, they said, of cherishing such creatures as the pinches. This came of lowering themselves to their level. This came of putting themselves in the humiliating position of seeming to know such bold, audacious, cunning, dreadful girls as that. They had expected this. They had predicted it to Mrs. Todgers, as she, Todgers, could depone that very morning. To this they added that the owner of the house, supposing them to be Miss Pinch's friends, had acted, in their opinion, quite correctly, and had done no more than, under such circumstances, might reasonably have been expected. To that they added, with a trifling inconsistency, that he was a brute and a bear, and then they merged into a flood of tears which swept away all wandering epithets before it. End of chapter 9, part 1